Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've been thinking a lot lately about civility. Of course, basic politeness and exercising good manners is essential. But I think civility, real civility, goes deeper. It means to choose our words carefully and thoughtfully in non-hurtful ways. It means to be respectful of how another person sees the world even when we heartily disagree. And to maintain a sense of humility, because as a wise friend of mine used to say, we could always be wrong. These are lofty goals, which I practice imperfectly, of course. But that's the tone we strive for in these programs. Thank you for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. I have a very low level of tolerance for an educational system that systematically excludes the deepest questions of meaning that are on the hearts and minds not only of the students, but of, their, of many of their teachers as well. A voice of educational reform on teaching and learning the life skills that will matter most. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. best-selling books and countless lectures, Parker Palmer has a message for teachers who struggle on the front lines of our education system. To avoid burning out, to be authentically present in your life and your work. To get revitalized, stand in your personal integrity. Parker sees so many people who work in schools and other institutions becoming mired in distrust and battered by bureaucracy. As a result, those who have been called to important service work can lose heart and watch their sense of purpose slip away. And when good-hearted people are in distress, he says, the solution is to dig deep inside. You know, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And a couple of years ago, when I felt I was, had gotten old enough to do this, I added a, an amendment to Socrates. I used to just quote him, now I amend him. The unexamined life is not worth living. By amendment, if you choose to live an unexamined life, please do not take a job that involves other people. <laughs> <laughs> because out of that, out of that unexamined life, whether you're a teacher or a boss or a clergy person or a political leader or a parent, out of your unexamined life, darkness is going to descend on whoever it is you're working with because you don't understand what's driving you and you're going to step into the pit that's on the other side of your gifts time after time and you're going to take either a few people or a whole bunch of people down with you. The Seattle-based Center for Courage and Renewal, which Parker founded, brings together people working in education and other fields who need a professional and spiritual boost. A main focus has been his longtime quest for a course correction in the way teachers teach and young people learn. Our colleges and universities graduate year after year lots and lots of people who have studied the external world, the object world, who have gained knowledge about it 
and skill to manipulate it, whether in engineering or political science or biology or any field you can name, management, studies, whatever. They have knowledge of the external world and the skill to manipulate it, but they have been given no help in understanding what's driving their actions in that world. They have unexamined hearts. That's a very dangerous combination, to put power over the external world in the hands of people who have no self-knowledge whatsoever because they haven't been helped in getting that self-knowledge, and indeed the institutions in which they've been educated have systematically ruled it out as having any sort of credibility or validity. Parker Palmer's books have included The Courage to Teach and The Heart of Higher Education. He's not suggesting schools abandon the teaching of basic skills, which students need to prepare them for the workplace or for higher education. But something is often conspicuously absent from the learning experience, he says. There's little emphasis on helping young people cultivate a deeper capacity for self-reflection. I think the stakes around this are really high. I don't, I don't think that spirituality and education, which is another way of naming what we've been talking about, has any... I don't think it's fundamentally about uh, stress reduction or frosting on the cake or kind of you know, paying lip service to the softer dimensions of life. I think it's centrally about educating people who can be ethical actors in the world, life-giving workers in the world, uh, because they understand enough about their inner drivers to be governing themselves, holding themselves accountable, trying to find those parts of their own inner landscape in which they can stand that are more life-giving than death-dealing as they move toward the world in their work and in their lives. The shortcomings that Parker Palmer perceives in our schools mirror problems he sees in other venues, ranging from healthcare to religious congregations. The commonality is a kind of tension that strains professionals who work in these institutions. Many labor hard under challenging conditions. Schools where standardized testing requirements can marginalize the teaching of subjects from social studies to music, or medical settings where the priority to trim costs often forces doctors to drastically shorten visits with the patient, or spiritual congregations that go through the motions of religion but are not very open-hearted. The consequences, says Parker, are substantial. As once-committed people lose their sense of purpose and passion, grow disillusioned and disengaged, and may eventually drop out. People of integrity know who it is they're there to serve and why. And as they walk through their days, experiencing these deforming institutional pressures where the institution becomes the, the worst enemy of its own mission, the best of these people are finding ways to negotiate that very complex force field 
and to reclaim integrity. Now, it's not something you do in an instant. It's not something that happens overnight. You return to it every day. Every day it comes in a new form. So it's a process to reclaim integrity in a professional context and in other aspects of our life. Until a person embarks on that process, what effect does this divided life have on a person? Well, on that one, I can speak from personal experience, and I think most of us can. You know, I think the journey for a lot of us is we come into this world as, as an infant, as a young child, who, who is whole, who is integral. The amazing thing about young kids, and the reason we like to be around them, at least I like to be around them a lot, is because there's absolutely no distinction, no wall of separation between what's on the inside and what's on the outside. As I like to say, whatever is on the inside of a kid comes immediately to the outside, both figuratively and literally. There's no duplicity here. There's no governing or guarding of the inner secret. And I think one of the reasons we love to be around little children is that they remind us of how we came into this world. And, and that sets up a kind of yearning question, whatever happened to me? Where did that original wholeness go? How, how do I get back to how it? How do I get back to it? I think the next step for a lot of us is that we learn the divided life uh, as a strategy of self-protection. Some kids, sadly, learn it at home where it's not safe to be who they are. But if you don't learn it there, you learn it at school. And I can clearly remember, as I went on in grade school and high school, how I became aware that some of the things I cared most about, some of my dreams, some of my passions, some of my uh, the things I love to do, ideas, reading, building model airplanes, uh, and all the fantasy involved with that, I literally needed to do that with the door to my room closed, and I was not going to bring that into the public realm at school because I'd get ridiculed or scoffed at. There I had to play a role. And, and if you don't, you're not safe. And if you want to talk to people who really know that story profoundly, talk to gay and lesbian young people who have learned that this core dimension of personal identity has to get tucked away in order to stay alive, maybe literally and often psychologically. But they also learn as time goes on that there's a form of death in hiding out who you really are. The educational system, as time goes on, actually exacerbates the problem. It certainly did for me. The higher I went in my education, all the way through a PhD at Berkeley, uh, the more it was drummed into me, we don't want to know what's going on in your heart or in your psyche or in your inner life. We want your total focus to be on the object world, the knowledge about the object world and the skills to manipulate the object world. So what effect does that have on a person to ask them to divorce these parts of themselves that otherwise are totally integrated? I think what it does is to create intense pain. Um, The divided life 
starts to change only, I think, when people get in touch with how painful it is to be in the world as someone other than yourself. A great line from Thomas Merton, he said, most of us live lives of self-impersonation. I think it's a brilliant insight. <clears throat> and I think that somewhere in, in midlife, early or middle midlife, some people get in touch with the fact <clears throat> that to live out your life and uh, to die eventually, li having lived a life of self-impersonation, having not been here as who you really are, is, one of, is the greatest tragedy that might befall a human being. Palmer's books and his efforts to help professionals remain inspired revolve around the theme of leading an undivided life, one where our inner truth, he says, can find expression and value in our outer lives, despite the sometimes enormous pressures many of us work under. I think what we've done in this society is we've, we've figured out how to invite a few human faculties into play we know how to invite the intellect into play. That's what universities are great at. We know how to invite the emotions into play. That's what a therapy group is about. We know how to invite the human will into play. That's what a committee or a task force does. And we certainly know how to invite the ego into play. That's, that's all of the above. But I think in our culture, we know very little, if anything, really, about the way to invite the soul into play. Some people may have trouble with the word soul, but it has a thousand synonyms. Uh, humanists call it identity and integrity. Uh, the Hasidic Jews call it the spark of the divine in every person. Thomas Merton called it true self. It's the being and human being that we know very little about how to invite into the space, into voice, into the conversation. And I don't mean for a minute <clears throat> to be denigrating these other faculties that I've named. I believe in intellect and emotion and will and even ego. It takes ego strength to stand in the midst of a complex institution in the best sense of that word. But in the absence of the soul, those other functions are diminished. They don't take us to the place of encounter with hard reality and the courage to walk into those hard realities, making our witness, speaking truth to power. It's really the presence of the soul that, that, that does that. My favorite philosopher about the meaning of soul is um, Sam Moore, who was one of the original Soul Brothers, an act called Sam and Dave. And he wrote the song called Soul Man. And 
And somebody asked him once, that word, that phrase, I'm a soul man, does that mean I'm a black man? And he said, no, no, not at all. That means I got a place inside of me that I can call on when the going gets tough. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about that place where the intellect collapses, the will collapses, the emotions are in turmoil, and the ego is smashed. There's got to be another place to call on, and that's a place of courage that I think is what we're trying to cultivate in this work we're doing. We're talking about how people reconnect what they do with who they really are. My guest is Parker Palmer, founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal based in Seattle, Washington. He's author of The Courage to Teach and Healing the Heart of Democracy. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, you can visit humanmedia.org. I know what it is in my own life to walk into situations with fear. I've done it for a long, long time, and when I was a younger man, I did a lot of it. And I made some real mistakes because I was animated by fear, driven by fear. And that fear transmitted itself to whoever it was I was working with. And the feedback loop made fear multiply upon itself. I I then, I was was raised in the Christian tradition, and one of the texts that I heard time and time again was, be not afraid. It's probably the bottom line counsel of a lot of wisdom traditions, certainly in my own. And for years those words were daunting for me because I thought they meant that I shouldn't have fear, that if I were a good person, I wouldn't have fear. And then I listen to the words more carefully. They don't say, don't have fear. They say, you don't have to be your fear. And I finally understood that I have a lot of different places in my inner landscape if I know how to explore that landscape and identify the various pieces of that terrain. And I have some choices to make about where I stand in, the, in that inner landscape as I move toward you or toward my students or toward my community organizing work. And if I stand in a place of fear, that's what I'll bring to the outer world, and the results will be predictable. But I can stand in a place of faith. I can stand in a place of hopefulness. I can stand in a place of fellow feeling, knowing that we're all in this together. Tonight, if my voice holds, I'm going to be speaking to 500 people. When I get up there, I'm going to have some fears. I'm going to wonder, how do I look? Will they like me? I'm going to wonder, most of all, will I be able to do service to these important ideas that I'd like to share and the people who've been carrying them around the country? And that fear could shut me down if I choose to stand there. That fear could undermine everything I would like to do this evening. So that's very analogous to the role of a teacher in a classroom with kids who may be damaged because of various social forces. 
What can a teacher do to reach inside and gain the confidence so that it is possible to do service to the mission of high ideas or knowledge that you wish to transmit? Well, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of books um, and I've read about workshops, uh, 10 Steps to Reduce Your Fear. I have to tell you, David, I don't believe in that approach. I don't, I don't believe that there are techniques that take us to this place. I think this is about existential muddling through. <laughs> but I think I know one thing about how we muddle through better rather than worse. And that is, we start telling the truth to ourselves, which is what the inner teacher most dearly wants. To, to no longer be in the world as someone impersonating themselves, but to be here as I really am. And the first step in that is to acknowledge to myself that I am inwardly a mix of shadow and light, of fear and hope of gift and liability. And this was something that it took me a long time to learn. A walking contradiction. A walking contradiction. And as I learned that, <clears throat> I'm less likely to take all those negative, so-called negative parts of myself and attach them to people in the world who then bear my shadow because I can't stand to bear it myself. That's the dynamic through which we make enemies, isn't it? We're doing that in this country right now. We always need an enemy. It was the Japanese, it was the commies, now it's radical Muslims. When will we ever learn that our society, from the get-go, has been one of the most violent ever on the face of the earth? and that we are projecting constantly on somebody else something we don't want to look at in ourselves. We, we need to go inward to find our own contradictions and multiplicity. And, and my, my belief about how we, how we heal this is that we embrace it. We, we, say, we say we are whole beings, and wholeness doesn't mean perfect. Wholeness means we contain our multitudes within ourselves. And as we start to know that, we find ourselves more at home in a multitudinous outer world and more at ease negotiating these complex situations where potentially dangerous things might happen. I like how the word integrity derives from the word integrate. Mm -hmm. Pieces of ourselves have to come together. And I'll just add one image there. A wonderful woman named M.C. Richards, who was a potter and a poet, wrote a great book called Centering, once said to me, she said, remember Parker, whole apple juice is not the pasteurized kind that you can see right through. It's that murky, muddy stuff that has bits and pieces of skin and stem and seed floating in it. And that's why it's whole. <laughs> I think it's a great image of what our own wholeness looks like.
Much of Parker Palmer's worldview is grounded in his decades-long quest to offer a new vision of education that emphasizes teaching with heart and soul. What are the most important things for young people to know, for them to blossom into caring citizens and into people who are spiritually self-aware? The first thing that comes to me is that young people need to know that there are older people in the world who are on this journey and who aren't afraid of it. I'm afraid that our young people grow up in institutions that keep saying to them, these questions of meaning that you might want to bring here, these questions of purpose, these questions of is life worth living and what's death all about and who am I and why am I here, don't bring them here. Don't bring them to school. Uh, bring them maybe to your pastor, or your priest, your therapist, or your parents, but not to these official institutions of education. That's not what we're here for. We're here to talk to you about facts and dates and just the names of historical figures. We're here to prepare you for dealing with the external world. We're not here to help you negotiate your inner world in any shape, form, or fashion. I'm afraid that most young people grow up without meeting really significant models and mentors among their elders who have the courage to take their own inner journey and to share it with young people in a way that says, this, this is not only human and permissible, this ought to be integrated into the work we're doing in this classroom, in this official educational setting. If, if that happened, young people would feel a deep sense of permission to ask the questions that are on their mind from a very young age. I will tell you something that drives me nuts, not the only thing, but one of them. We do this work around meaning and purpose with physicians, teachers, lawyers, clergy, philanthropists. And <clears throat> people sometimes say to me, these are great questions for folks in midlife but they don't work with high school kids or college students. The reason they don't work is that kids know they'll be punished if they bring them to these educational settings. They'll be put down. And so why in the world would they reveal that they have these questions? And if we can't talk about that in the public square, what do we get? Well. We all know what we get. We get the banalities that the public square is filled with today, while young people die on the vine for want of elders who, who even have a capacity and a will to address these questions of meaning. So what would be the impact on a young person if they had a role model for asking these deep questions and for working through the questions and for changing our, our lives accordingly. Young people would, <clears throat> would, would have a, an image that I think that most of us carry for a long time of people we've met who are our personal heroes or models, exemplars. 
an image of something that's possible for their own lives, opening a door to that invites them to take a next step and a next step and a next step, not, not to become like their exemplar or their mentor, but to find their own path with the same kinds of questions. So it's permission, it's encouragement, it's empowerment, but it's, it's most of all this, this thing of, I've seen it, so nobody can ever tell me it's not possible. Parker Palmer, founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal in Seattle and author of The Courage to Teach and Healing the Heart of Democracy. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Alan Mattis. Editorial assistance from Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, and Mark Kilstein. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Nancy Carlson Page and to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Healing Our Divided Lives with Parker Palmer, is Humankind Program number 216. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.